You are listening to Under the Skin. Thank you for downloading this podcast. I'm really grateful to you. In this podcast, I question what's beneath the surface of people we admire, of ideas that define our time, of the history we are told. And now it's time for Under the Skin. But this is said differently this time. listening to Under the Skin with Russell Brand. Thank you for downloading this podcast. We're very grateful to you. My guest on Under the Skin today is Dr. Robin Carhart-Harris, the head of psychedelic research at Imperial College London, and he's not even 37 years of age yet. He's already been described as the whiz kid of psychedelic research, and imagine how competitive that field is, and the cooler, <laughs> younger brother of Brian Cox, who we adore and will hopefully have on here. The universe is a lovely thing, isn't it? His research is as exciting as it is taboo. He investigates the brain effects and potential therapeutic uses of psychedelic drugs, and as such is the first person in the UK to have legally administered doses of LSD to human volunteers since the misuse of drug acts in 1971. Dr. Robin, thank you for coming on the show. Pleasure, yeah. Nice to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Oh, you're so kind to say. Can I call you doctor? Sure. Although I'm not a medical doctor. So. Mm, I'm <laughs> not going to then, because I don't think of any of the... Anyone that's not a medical doctor, I think, should be stripped of their title. Unless you're wearing a white coat and putting your fingers up people's bums. <laughs> I don't consider you part of our system. No, thank, um, thanks, Dr. Robin. I'm still of a uh, sufficiently dilettantish to find titles alluring. Okay. Doctors, professors, all of that stuff. I'm bang into it. Um, tell me, Can you tell me what that means, that you are the head? of psychedelic research at the Imperial what, What's going yeah, on there? Yeah, so um, for the last few years, I suppose about uh, eight years now, I've been doing uh, human research with psychedelic drugs. Um, I've done a number of brain imaging studies looking at how these drugs work in the brain. Uh, most recently, I've transitioned into uh, giving a psychedelic for a particular psychiatric disorder to try and treat it as depression mm. and we give psilocybin which is found in magic mushrooms um, so now um, the team is transitioning more into looking at applications and how these drugs can be useful not just how they work yeah. Presumably if you're moving to the point of application some of the efficacy of these substances has been established Now um, Robin before we get into that I'd like to learn how someone growing up you're a British person are yeah, you? Yeah. How, how, how did you get into psychedelics because it seems to me like a broad and interesting field Like, uh, tell me about your academic background and, um, and how you became interested in yeah. psychedelics Well um, there's kind of two, two aspects to the story and and perhaps the the latter one, which is easier to talk about, um, happened around um, my early 20s when I was studying uh, psychoanalysis, so Freud and Jung. And, um, and I was absolutely fascinated by this topic and I couldn't get enough of it. And I was, you know, uh, any opportunity reading whatever I could. Um, but I also felt a little um, dissatisfied with where psychoanalysis sat in terms of mainstream psychology. Um, it felt kind of cliquish, it felt uh, perhaps not scientific enough, it didn't seem to 
have convinced people of the um, validity of its main ideas, like the existence of the unconscious mind, for example. And I was a believer in some sense, but I didn't want it to have to be that way. I didn't want it to have to be a kind of leap of faith. Um, I thought we could maybe demonstrate um, that certain principles of psychoanalysis are true. And by these principles, you mean primarily the existence of an unconscious on an individual level? Yes, but also a collective level. So that would be Carl Jung's work, that there's aspects of our psyches that are shared, you know, certain themes, certain ways of being, certain aspects of the human condition that are in us all. And this is demonstrated, what, through motifs and archetypes? Yeah, yeah. Why did you find that so interesting? Well, I think because it felt true, because it resonated with me. Um, And I think you can see it in culture. You can see it in religion. Um, And and so I I kind of wanted to demonstrate that, you know, that that there's real meat here. It's not just, you know, fantasy or the product of our or Jung's and, and others, you know, w- wild imaginations that these things are, are kind of real. You know? For me, this podcast, the reason I do it is to educate myself and to educate others and to try to, in some way, translate the gap that exists between academia and what you would call, I suppose, normal people <laughs> <laughs> or everybody else that doesn't have ec- access to the s- sort of privileged uh, nomenclature of academia, of which the word nomenclature is undoubtedly an example. Um, like, so like when you talk about like uh, Freud and Jung and psychoanalysis and some of its like key ideas, like what is the, what's this distinction between Freud's view of the unconscious and Jung's view of the unconscious, for example? Yeah, so Freud put most of the emphasis on, on sex, I suppose, and sexuality, and also um, uh, the unconscious, the Freudian unconscious, if you want, had much more to do with um, our own lives, our relationships with important figures in our lives, and particularly our parental figures. Um, Whereas Jung um, kind of transcended that level and talked about the unconscious mind with reference to culture and religion and mysticism. Um, And so it was a kind of, if you want, a a sort of deeper aspect of our minds, our unconscious minds, if you want, that, that Jung was particularly interested in. He also, there was a bit of a spat between the two figures and, and Jung felt Freud put too much on sex and and the personal, you know. Sounds like a pretty funny marriage. (laughs) You're always on about sex. Well, you don't care about sex enough. Stop taking that bloody cocaine. Stop taking those psychedelics. (laughs) Freud and Jung, the sitcom, by me, Jocelyn. I'm like... So uh, Freud thought everything was coming down to sex and your individualised life, and like Jung thought that there's enough evidence to suggest through archetypes and recurring motifs and themes through religions, culture, uh, to suggest that there's some sort of interconnectivity. Although in like Freud's work on like totemism and taboo, there's an indication there that if sort of certain taboos are recurring throughout cultures, that that in itself is an indication of some sort of collectivised mind. Yeah, I think. I think Freud uh, touched on it and I think it's a bit of a slightly, you know, oversold differentiation that I just made, you know, and and Freud was, um, would refer to to kind of collective aspects of the unconscious. Freud was more mechanistic, um, although Jung was as well. I think the differences are are kind of emphasised perhaps too much because of this personal spat between the two and because they kind of 
emphasise the differences. Right, they emphasise their differences because I suppose we take for granted the things that we share in common and so the differences start to become yeah. pertinent and germane. So from this early interest in unconsciousness, somehow or another, you start to think it was all right to t- sit around doing drugs. <laughs> Justify yourself. <laughs> it wasn't really quite that. It was more that, um, you know, how can we test this stuff? Um, and... And I was in a seminar one day and, and they were the seminar leader and the people in the group were talking about all the different ways that psychoanalysis had to access the unconscious mind. And the best that it could come up with pretty much was dreaming, you know, and dreams are brilliant and fascinating, but they're quite unreliable. And Mine are. <laughs> they are. They're just no, they are. They're crap. I mean, like, from one day to the next, absolute cod swallop coming out of them. Okay, yeah. But like, what? Well, so this is the tools of empirical tools for accessing the unconscious are dreams, hypnosis. These are like sort of like the, the uh, recognizable tools. Mm-hmm. And what? And you think that those tools are a bit lame? Yeah, basically. Yeah, and you're, and you're not, you know, and has been proven really. You're not going to convince enough people with those tools mm. because you know people have said of dreams that they're just chaotic they're noise they don't mean anything i actually disagree with that but yeah that's a popular view that because yeah a lot of jung's work on like say for i've read something the other day about sort of compensatory dreams like they're like that 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 the unconscious mind is at least trying to narrativize your life or is trying to communicate with you and you've talked already about the idea of archetypes it seems that when we're like you know in some senses when we're referring to the transcendent or we're referring to a, a potent and all-encompassing being it could in fact be regarded that our own unconscious is the repository for great information great knowledge that uh, and we have a kind of a peculiarly unceremonial and inconsistent relationship with this aspect of ourselves well absolutely and and this is where psychedelics come in because um I stumbled across, kind of stumbled across some literature on LSD being used in psychotherapy in the 50s and 60s. And um, I was just blown away to discover that the main rationale for using LSD in psychotherapy was that it would lower ego defences and then allow access to this, you know, far vaster uh, realm of our minds, the unconscious mind, and I just thought this is true. <laughs> and, uh, Had I mean, you taken psychedelics by that time? Um, Are you a bit embarrassed about talking about? Not embarrassed. It's just a sensitive one. Why? In a, I think because of stigma, stigma around, and also stigma of being a scientist studying these. And the mainstream scientific community. I'm a scientist. Oh yeah, what are you doing? Drugs. Yeah, there you go. And then they think you're a hippie and not a scientist. Yeah, and it's interesting, isn't it? But it's in itself a taboo subject, and it's sort of its origins. What? Who are the early pioneers around psychedelics? What Timothy Leary, or like Aldous yeah. Huxley, yeah. Ram Dass, all that. Crew. Well, there were a few people looking at mescaline early on in the early twentieth um, century. Um, uh, but really a breakthrough happened um, when the Swiss chemist, Albert Hoffman, uh, kind of slightly serendipitously came across LSD and synthesised LSD while looking for drugs um, uh, more to do with, with, with blood and, and, um, and, and, you know, the blood system. He synthesised it sort of like, like so he, he's working away on some sort of blood circulatory yeah, drug. Yeah, on these agotamine drugs. What, um, what are they, mate? Related to uh, um, these fungi that, that grow on certain grasses. Ah, so he's working with mushrooms and stuff, and he come, what's it he comes yeah, across kind then? Of mushroom related, and 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 uh, one of the compounds that he synthesised, one of quite a few, was this LSD twenty five, um, and. Uh, it, 
the story goes that he got he, a bit on his skin and uh, somehow, you know, ingested it and had this like mild um, psychedelic trip. And then I think the next day he went back and thought, well, I'll take a tiny little bit just to see if, if it was this LSD-25 that made me feel so strange. So he took 200 mics, which is quite, I think it's 200, 250, is quite a big dose, you know, of LSD. Is it? And then he had a full-on, you know, mind-blowing uh, trip uh, full of nightmarish visions and, and such like. Oh, I like that, because it sounds a little bit like the Hulk, doesn't it? He got a little bit on him by accident, and then he becomes sort of basically Hulk or Spider-Man, whoever, because they all follow that template. Some encounter, which is a bloody a Jungian idea yeah, in right, itself, exactly. isn't it? Like an encounter, some sort of uh, mentor encounter, mm. and then he becomes another person. He goes mm. back the next day, next 250 of whatever of it, and he goes into some form some sort of transcendent realm then what happened so between the 20s and the 60s you don't start hearing about it again really till what 50s and 60s yeah it started um, heating up in the 50s people started using LSD in really psychoanalytic psychotherapy which kind of dominated psychiatry then the kind of Freudian model really Mm. Um, and then into the 60s things got a bit more colourful and people started taking it recreationally and then Timothy Leary came on the scene he took some Magic Mushrooms, after reading an article um, about these uh, tribes in in Mexico who were taking uh, mushrooms, and then he took LSD and everything changed. And he kind of, he was an academic originally. He was at Harvard. um. He's like some sort of Harvard fuddy-duddy with a dicky bow tie and a suit on. And before you know it, it's tune in, drop out, have a nice relax. (laughs) So this is very curious that like all these substances, or not all these substances, this idea seems to exist in indigenous cultures. The idea of, uh, I don't know, sort of shamanism or plant-based transcendent experiences is a old idea and perhaps an original idea an indigenous idea possibly one of somewhere in the crucible of civilization we will find this idea where man becomes religious where man begins to believe mm. do you think it's as important as that is that what is the basis of your interesting in personal interest in psychedelics i think that's part of it so yeah the therapeutic side and and there's a lot of um you know very um deep wisdom to those uh cultures that use that have used psychedelics for you know maybe thousands of years um and in a way, we're just kind of, to some extent, we're rediscovering what those cultures always knew. But we are bringing something new to the table. Oh, I think we're bringing a, you know, um, for all our flaws as, as sort of, you know, uh, Western, um, you know, secular people, uh, we we do have an ability to um, break things down, to deconstruct them, and to try and understand the mechanisms underneath. And that's important, is it, to have an understanding of the medicinal and mechanical operation of these chemicals? I think so. I Why? think so. Um, I think it's important to understand um, how something works. You know, some people would argue that it, it makes no difference to me to, to have that knowledge. But I think sometimes, you know, there can be some um, differences for example, in where people ascribe the locus of action of a drug. So, for example, indigenous people might say that it's the plant that holds an intelligence and we tap in through taking the plant, we we surrender to it and allow its intelligence to guide us. Whether and, that's the mushroom or the ayahuasca yeah, or whatever. Yeah, exactly. Um, or they may say that it's the songs, you know, these ikaros that the shamans sing, 
uh, these kind of chants that are sung to people while they're under the influence of, of say, ayahuasca, this jungle psychedelic. Oh. Um, and Whether it, it's wave or particle, somewhere or another, it's affecting consciousness. Whether it is the wave or the vibration form of the chant or the particularity of the substance, well, one way or another, consciousness is being shifted. This wave versus particle argument, that what is the essential element? What is it? Is it let there be light or is it let there be matter? What is it? What is it? Now, what happened with you, mate, when you necked them bloody drugs? I want to know all about it. You're clearly some sort of... Like, you know me, I'm in recovery. You don't know me. I'm in recovery. I don't take... I've not had taken any drugs at all or had a drink one day at a time for and a half years. Curiously, Bill Wilson, the founder of 12-Step Fellowships himself, became very interested in psychedelics for a brief while after mm. he got clean from alcohol yeah. and uh, I think hung with your man Tim Leary there yeah. for a while and he, he wanted to integrate LSD into the 12 steps which would be an interesting addition the last step uh, one imagines is, is kind of finding finding God isn't it finding religion. in a sense yeah the 12 step is uh, having had a spiritual awakening right, okay. as the result of these steps we made a decision to turn our life and will over God and to practice these principles in all our affairs so eventually I suppose a life of altruism philanthropy and service based on this realisation mm. now like me I, like even though I work in sort of media and write children's books I am prepared to say that like um, I've taken LSD when I was like sort of the first time I think I was 16 and something very, I mean, it seemed, well, essentially, when you say like that it was used in therapy to break down the ego, I can see what people mean because well, the most obvious, most obvious, most immediate and most tangible thing that I experienced was, oh no, I'm not me. Mm. I remember thinking that. I remember mm. thinking, I'm not me. I'm not what I thought I was. Mm. This idea, because uh, what I personally felt was very chained to my identity. I'm Russell. I was born at this time. This is what I believe in. I support West Ham United. I like Morrissey. And I, I remember feeling all that stuff dismantling in a mirror mm. and like feeling somewhat afraid. I can see why there would need to be caution, ceremony, mentorship and guidance mm. when dealing with that. Mm. And I suppose in a secular society clinical conditions is what replaces the idea of ritual ceremony the shaman mm. guidance that's a level this is we're taking it in a laboratory i'm not doing this in a park with with glenn and dean doing acid and staring at the clouds and throwing up eating a calypso ice lolly <laughs> i'm in a bloody laboratory <laughs> <laughs> no i mean in a way um and we do borrow from what's gone before and um uh, in terms of the sort of shamanic model in the sense that we um, do change the laboratory. You know, we get rid of the fluorescent lighting and there's oh, low yeah, thank God. lighting and we have um, we have some nice um, uh, ambient music. Pan and pipes. Someone gets a bloody pan pipe out. I'm off my nuts. So what you create in the laboratory, like laboratory conditions for psychedelics means what? Talk me through what the process is. Yeah, so um, we'll, um, we'll bring in some, some low lighting. Um, we'll uh, compile a, a, a playlist that, that has a certain structure. It's like you're trying to chat someone up. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, um, hey baby, I'm feeling like getting real high tonight. <laughs> um, and uh, it's going to sound worse now, but we build a certain relationship as well, so uh, of trust, you know. Oh, that's lovely. Yeah, and uh, we try and get to know each other <laughs> and kind of lay things on on, on the table. Um, and what do you uh, mean, literally shamanic <laughs> objects or? <laughs> 
No, um, and for, so Create an, an atmosphere of trust and, and yeah. open communication. Yeah. How many people were at one time? You're in Imperial just one. College, you're in yeah. London, England, yes. and just with you and one person, how does this work? Uh, usually two people, we call them guides or sitters. And, and then people are on the level, they've not took nothing. Uh, usually they have, you know. But, but in that moment? In that moment, no. No, they're sober. They're the sober ah. guides, the sober sitters. Um, and uh, and they're you know particularly compassionate and and encourage a um, uh, an atmosphere of openness um, of a willingness to let go uh, to explore um, to surrender that analytical mind uh, that I was talking about earlier um, and to trust and, and to kind of go with the flow of the experience. What substances have you been working with? Psilocybin, magic mushrooms. Um, so psilocybin is in magic mushrooms, LSD, uh, now DMT, and I have my colleague next to me, Chris Timmerman, who's um, studying DMT at the moment, um, and MDMA. Timmerman, won't you help me to understand DMT? That's based on that Sugarman song. I'm quite childish. Uh, hello, uh, Chris Timmerman. You're like you were introduced as um, PhD student. What you, do, Chris? Hello, welcome. What are you doing your PhD in, mate? Uh, in the PhD. I'm currently leading a study on trying to find out what are the effects of DMT in the brain. That's basically it. And kind of like linking experience and brain. You're trying to work out that what happens. So tell me what that involves. What are you doing, Chris? Um, so we're basically giving DMT to um, a number of healthy participants. So is this young people, students at Imperial College primarily? Actually, not necessarily. I mean, you have a wide range of interested people in our studies, and you can have from 20 to 50-year-old people, yeah. Okay, and talk me through the process. So um, we have, like, two kind of, like, uh, main phases of the study. So in the first one, we wanted to, you know, address can we give a a nice dose of DMT without, you know, inducing anxiety? You know, it's such a strong drug that you want to do it in the best safe possible way, but you want to get the effects that you're after. You want to get to those far-out sort of experiences in the best way and safest way possible. So we first did a pilot phase. Uh, There was no brain imaging being done. You know, just people were just sitting there in a nice environment, just chilling. And we gave them different doses of DMT, uh, you know, in this nice setting. We saw what happened during the experience. We kind of like uh, did interviews, questionnaires. We kind of like addressed that in the most detailed way possible, trying to map these effects in experience. and, you know, we did that, we characterized it, we find the right dose, and now we're moving into actually, you know, brain imaging, like proper, you know. How like many people did you trial to establish what you considered to be the right dose? Uh, 12 people. And so what did you find across these 12 people? Uh, we found that um, you got, we tried out three different doses, right? The right dose, the experience characterized by, by the right dose, all those kind of like these stages that we're, you know, we think are very interesting. So the first one is this kind of like bodily rush, you know, this feeling that people are actually expanding outside of their body somehow. Uh, then this kind of like entering into a geometric sort of like space, uh, very kind of like wonderful, beautiful, colorful, moving geometrical patterns. And then pushing through into this kind of like different sort of space, you know. This feeling that you're entering some sort of realm that it's not coming from inside, but it's actually, you know, you're visiting somewhere else. 
And in this space, you know, many people encounter entities, presences that engage with them, communicate with them. Some receive very meaningful information. Some receive like cosmic stuff, spiritual stuff. Other, others have like personal insights on their lives. Hmm. They felt that they're being carried by someone through, you know, messages of importance and stuff like that. How curious the corollary, um, Chris, uh, um, rather Robin, in what Chris is describing in what you said about your interest being triggered by the work of Jung and Freud in that there is a commonality of mm. experience mm. That, that people uh, are describing and that, that one of the early phases of it is transcendence. Would you please just tell me, uh, DMT, what does it stand for? Dimethyltryptamine. Dimethyltryptamine. Yeah. From what is this substance uh, derived? Um, it's found in nature in series of like plant sources. Uh, you can find the, the actual drug. Uh, we, you know, we buy it from a lab that synthesizes it for, you know, uh, experimental procedures itself. But you can find it in nature. You can find it in the body as well. The human body has this substance in it. Does There's that suggest evidence. anything to you? There's some evidence on it. Yeah. Well, we have very, very small amounts, um, so we don't know if it's, you know, if it actually plays a role into any of these, you know, naturally occurring spiritual experiences. Uh, or if not, or, or if just maybe some sort of like out product of the system just happening by accident. I see. That we don't Inadvertent know. and non-essential. Yeah. I suppose what we're interested in is consciousness, isn't it? The nature of consciousness. What is this that's happening to us? What is beingness? What is it to experience the information conveyed to us through the senses and to see ourselves as these sort of participants in and author of our own reality. So anything that can significantly disrupt the manner in which we understand reality has potentially profound implications mm. for us <clears throat> as a species, for the way that we civilise, socialise and organise. One can see why it's a substance that's been heavily controlled since its inception. Now, in the 60s, when people were working with LSD, there was a point where it began to be sort of quite heavily policed, controlled, banned. Is yeah. that true? Yeah, yeah. In, uh, in the late 60s, um, a number of states in the US started to, to make it illegal, essentially, um, and uh, the research was affected uh, by implication, really. It, was, it then became not impossible, but very difficult to do the research. And actually, at one stage, it did become impossible, and um, uh, regulatory people were coming around and confiscating psychedelics. And so there was a very rapid um, about turn in um, really society's... Um, perspective on on psychedelics what was happening in america in the, in the late 60s that may be of, of uh, interest with regard to s controls on experimental hallucinogens and psychedelics yeah i mean there was a lot going on culturally in terms of the counterculture and i think there were some fears that maybe lsd was fueling some of that um political um uh, yes, it's quite likely, isn't it? If there was a sort of a, like a civil rights <clears throat> movement, Vietnam War, yeah. the emergence of counterculture, the ideas of the beats start to become, in a sense, politicised. Like these, uh, like the uh, Eastern mysticism is now like goes through the conduit of uh, of American literature and poetry and starts to become a kind of socialising and politicised form as well as an artistic form. And one can, in uh, perhaps uh, not intuit but conject that if society is an agreement if people start looking at society 
differently or mm. consciousness differently mm. or themselves differently the potential for change is suddenly dramatically enhanced do you think that that's possibly why these substances were controlled rather than people are worried about i don't know dental care or whether or not people are all right i think so you know in some ways you could characterize it as the the youth becoming more conscious um and less conformist more questioning that's exactly what they were doing whether they were doing that anyway or whether psychedelics were actually fueling those changes because of this idea that psychedelics broaden consciousness um, is an interesting one. I'm a fan of Terence McKenna, who's, I suppose, like the, the, one of the great pioneers, isn't he, one would say, of sort of this sort of plant-based studies. But also, like, for you guys who are academics, he must be sort of a controversial figure. And one of the things with this podcast is I become aware that there are sort of sanctioned academics and then there's people who are like, oh, yeah, right, that guy type people. And, like, uh, and even though I'm a sort of great admirer of Terence McKenna because I think he's so lucid and vivid and brilliant, articulate, yeah. imaginary, sort of prophet in a sense... Like that, I've picked up that there he's on the side of the fence of well, that's not British type sort of stuff, you know. Like. Uh, the thing about Terence McKenna is he, he's a fascinating personality, a great speaker, um, at, with incredibly interesting ideas. Now, whether they're true or not is another is another question, and my own view is that. The jury's out, really, on a lot of his ideas. Yeah, and what the meaning of true is, and uh, and uh, and Bill Hicks, like uh, one of the great comedians of uh, twenty, like a couple of decades ago, like he sort of he kind of said, and I, I think I'm guessing you maybe got this from McKenna or maybe from your field, this where you guys are experts, that like uh, shamanism is a sort of uh, and, sh- and psychedelic plants are like an agent of evolution in that it has an impact on consciousness and, and our conscious experience. Now I'm guessing, Chris, mate, from what you're saying about like these experiments you've done, that you've had a wee little go at that DMT yourself. Now if you don't mind, you tell me exactly what happens, please, because I'd like to know all about it, from the process of how it's imbibed to what happens to your mind, and if you can describe the experience using so blunt a tool as language, I'd like you to do it. So, so just going through it again. Um, no, from when you get a hit on the pipe. Oh, right. <laughs> and then what happens in your brain, not like from a screen, from, from experiencing it. Yeah, so um, it all begins... Um, with this intense, very, very intense rush in the body, you know, there's this kind of like, it feels like this very strong flow of energy going through, you know, what people describe. As how much you pipe rush. in and how you're, so you're putting it on a foil on a bottle and go, <laughs> how like, I mean, how you, people usually do. Yeah. Oh uh, my God. So they, and how are you doing? Cause he's in a university. Does it look a little bit less under the bridge? <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, yeah, I mean. I can, yeah, I'd rather not. Well, it's it. Why? Because you, you think the mechanics of it are worrying, are they? It worries you guys to talk about it. Not really, no. No, but we give it intravenously, so it's not yeah. It's not like a kind so of... So in a drip or in a needle? In a needle, yeah. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And then, so, like, so you give people a little dose, then what, like, what... If you take it, do you take it intravenously or do you smoke it? If I would have to take it... Is it illegal? Are you worried about legal stuff or professional stuff? Well, yeah. Both. <laughs> okay. Okay. If you hypothetically were to take I, hypothetically, it, hypothetically, you know, how would you? It, uh, you know, smoke would be the the easiest. Mm. Uh, I'd worry about the old lungs. On that, I'd probably go straight for the 
straight for the old main systems, right into the brain, <laughs> into the nape of the neck. <laughs> I'd like it. Um, like a, no, but I don't do drugs, and I think you know, like as a person in recovery, I think you have to be very careful. Although there's a lot of talk that psychedelics can influence addictive behaviours and, and and issues around dependency. So it's a very very interesting area when it comes because I my personal belief is that addiction stems from trying to solve a spiritual emotional psychological issue through external means whether that's sexual behavior or other extreme behaviors around food or gambling or but most notably and obviously dependency and over reliance on alcohol and drugs now I don't see how someone could become dependent on this experience where first of all you feel a tremendous rush on the body then you have some experience of geometry suggesting that geometry is one of the archetypal things that exist so then Greek or onto something that geometry is actual ways of energy and shapes and matter forming and then after that you go into what some domed realm where there appear to be entities communicating with you and what do people say these tell me about that bit that's a very interesting thing i mean there's this kind of like you there's this transition from the space of the geometries into this actual kind of like you know different sort of space different realm that feels alive uh, and it feels very true as well for many yes. people. I mean, if, if the dose is high enough, you know, people kind of reliably go into this space. And this space can be, you know, full of color, different objects. Not necessarily you will get the same sort of like shapes, entities. Some people speak about aliens. Some speak, people speak about goblins. Some people don't even speak about visual evidence, entities, just something being alive around you. Yes, because I suppose that would be interpretive. A friend of mine who's been on this podcast, Simon Amstel, he's a British comedian. He said that with he, he like with his experience with ayahuasca, mm. that he said that he's described that the different people in the group. He was in a group about six people. He said, and like he, as a sort of a secularized uh, Jewish person, uh, he experienced this guiding psychiatrist, and there was like a Hindu person who had an experience with Ganesh, and a Christian person who had Christ. Like divinity needs an avatar. The divine comes to you in the form of a, of an image, which is really just a form of geometry, I suppose, loose geometry. Uh, but like, everyone's having the same essential experience of there is there is an authority, there is something accessible to consciousness, which you said there, Chris, and you said also, Robin, maybe external may not be. Yeah, well, of course you're seeing Jesus. You just took it. You just injected yourself with a big armful of delicious what dimethyltryptamine? Dimethyltryptamine, yeah. So what what is so this? Why do people think it might be external because of the consistency of the experience? It's an it's an interesting, definitely an interesting question. I mean, the thing is that it's always a drug. You know, it, it's an actual thing entering your body. You know, causing these experiences. The feeling, the experience, is very real. I mean, feels very real, and it's. I think it's definitely you know something to respect, right? Mm. People people feel there's some authority, there's something external, something that you kneel or bow down to in some sort of way. You respect wow. deeply. That being said, um, not necessarily, you know, it is something real uh, or that's something that exists actually outside of realm of, you know, personal experience. We don't know these things. It's, diffi- it's difficult to access them uh, from a scientific point of view. But, so it's, you know, you know mo- most, most things are outside of us, you know, most, most things, most objects, you know, most entities are outside of us. And even when we dream... We think we're in a world where things are outside of us, you know, but we know that that, um, uh, you know, play, if you want, is being played out, you know, in our minds. And we know that there are changes in brain activity that account for it. And it's a similar thing with psychedelics. I mean, we know, you know, with 
very high reliability that they work on a particular aspect of the brain, that they work on a particular neurotransmitter system, a particular receptor, serotonin receptor. If you block it, you don't trip, you don't see the entities. Mm. So really all the evidence is that it comes from the brain, it comes from the mind. But there's a thing that humans do which they they have an inclination to do which is to kind of externalize you know to project and say it's out there the realm is is real it's another dimension you know these entities are actually aliens that come from wherever so we've become sort of in a way overly sensual and overly materialistic it becomes our main interpretive tool is to regard phenomena as external as opposed to internal possibly one could conjecture. I think we've got a bias to see things why that way why do we have this bias of externalising and materialising why do we have this bias why do we have it um, alright um, I'm interested in so many things here mostly getting out of my nut no I always have to be very very careful I've got a great deal of respect and indeed fear of drugs because of the way that it made my life go all really really badly wrong but like what what I'm interested in. I sort of think. I think is the exploration of this world now. When you under these clinical studies of hallucinogens, in the studies that yourselves that you were conducting, and in previous studies, what part of the brain is being impacted, and what can we learn from that? Yeah. Well, it, it starts with a serotonin system, and the molecules come in. They, and serotonin. It, where else would we see that affected? Actually, there's loads of it in the gut, um, but we've oh. got a lot of it in our in our brains um, there isn't such a massive you know there's a kind of relationship with those with those systems and people talk about visceral feelings yes visceras are, I feel are it gut. in my gut yeah exactly gut instinct um, so yeah so serotonin is in the brain and it modulates a range of different things states of consciousness sleep mood the way we think and um, psychedelics kind of hijack the serotonin system in a certain aspect of it and then kind of tickle it in a particular way. It seems a right cheeky little devil, doesn't it, getting in there tickling away on the systems. Yeah, and uh, and then at the kind of broader level in terms of the whole of the brain, that changes networks in the brain. And, and that's the way we tend to think about brain function these days. We don't think of, oh, this bit here does this. You know, mm. it's like this distributed system that often encompasses the whole of the brain with bits at the front and bits at the back, yes. you know, does something like, yes. you know, vision or movement yes. or, yeah. This model of compartmentalisation likely comes from this period of industrialisation which a lot of these discoveries were made in when we saw mechanistic models as being compartmentalised and as we realise at a time where our technology is understood in terms of cybernetics, we start to look at consciousness and the brain as a comparable entity it's unlikely that here's the looking out the window button and yeah. here's my going to the toilet tree yeah. no it's instead that as dear Morrissey would say does the mind rule the body or does the body rule the mind I don't know <laughs> maybe it's circular yeah, <laughs> yeah right that there's, that where are these where are these boundaries where are these lines who's drawing them in and for what reason? Okay, so like one of the things that happens is serotonin uh, tr transmission and reception starts going all unusual. Yeah. Um, what else? And that that creates uh, conditions of, of plasticity or uh, potential for change. Um, and you know, in those kind of looser conditions, uh, the constraints on brain function, the way the brain's working, um, are are sort of uh, lifted and the brain can operate in a much freer way and what happens under those conditions is 
the brain networks that that we know that we know subserve different functions like vision like moving like hearing like higher level things like even consciousness they begin to break down they begin to dissolve and disintegrate and when they do that another interesting thing that happens when you look at the whole of the brain is that these systems become less uh, different from each other they kind of start to blend in to each other and those two things so the disintegration of networks and the kind of coming together of networks and the sort of blending relate uh, so we've seen and so we think to some of the um, kind of most abstract aspects of the experience so one of them is uh, these reports of ego dissolution that you were talking about earlier you know that that sense that your narrative self you know who Russell is um, is being compromised and you're just as awake just as consciousness but all of a sudden that narrative self dropped away and the other one is that you might feel when that happens first of all a fear but also if that's transcended a sense of connecting to something bigger you know a sense of connectedness a sense of oneness that's interesting so the ego one's idea of a narrativized self a sort of a physical entity with a story and a life and a perspective when that dissolves there's a sense of connection and relief and release. That I do remember. I took LSD quite a lot for a while. Um, sometimes it felt very brilliant and beautiful and I enjoyed it. But remember, I wasn't taking it under laboratory conditions. I was taking it under the probably the worst conditions you could take it under, Essex, <laughs> like, in the first cases. And then sort of like in hanging out in like sort of people's bedsits in New Cross Gate and like with people that like with themselves, just young men. And like you know, like sort of eighteen-year-old lads, and like I can, for example, here's like the worst thing that ever happened to me. And check this out: like everyone, we, someone had got a load of acid, like sheets of the stuff, and I obviously, as a very keen young drug user, was like, I'll have that, and went and swapped my bike for a good sheet of it. And like uh, everyone pretended one night that they were all doing some, and they all just ate a little bit of paper, which is all the form that it was delivered in, and mm-hmm. I took real acid, but they had only ate, had a bit of paper. Mm-hmm. Then an hour in. As my trip's kicking in, they'll go, guess what? We didn't take acid. So I'm now on a trip that requires, as you said, in laboratory conditions, trust, release, and all of that. And I'm told that none of the rest of them are doing it. Man, I was not happy that day. And like, because I was starting, like, you know, my, again, I'm, uh, yeah, I'm an adolescent male. So my identity is forming. My ego is a fragile thing anyway, coming from the kind of background that I came from. And, you know, I remember like feeling very, very disrupted and very, very frightened mm. and very afraid. I mean, so that these psychedelic drugs are not things to be toyed around with yeah. lightly. But I think the sort of this general awareness, and like, sort of, I'm a big fan of Daniel Pinchbeck. He writes a lot about sort of the, taking different um, plant, ba- different plant medicines and stuff in different cultures and stuff. Uh, I think that there's important and potentially revolutionary information held. Yeah. in these plants well, I, and substances. I, I, yeah, I mean, I agree with that. And people have said that psychedelics are kind of, you know, they're kind of apart from other drugs, and there's a bit of evidence to support that. So, for example, this big population study in the US looked at, you know, some 200,000 people and then looked at patterns of drug use and the relationship to mental health and found that psychedelics stood out like a sore thumb because all other drugs, the more you take, the worse your mental health. But psychedelics, the more you took, the lower was psychological distress and the lower was suicidality, the two uh, measures that they, that they looked at. So people have questioned whether you can even call psychedelics recreational drugs. 
because at least in principle they shouldn't be taken for recreation mm. maybe self-exploration or therapeutic yes. work but not you know not at a party or whatever yeah because i remember like my impulse in taking those substances when i was in fact in all drugs i wanted to get out of myself i felt like trapped and in sort of in pain and like also the other thing curiously that i felt is what we're experiencing as reality is not the ultimate reality there's something else i wanted that so i kept like puffing loads of weed then drinking loads and doing other drugs and eventually becoming a crack and heroin addict but the thing that had this odd transcendent and what do i want to say sort of like uncanny almost mm. macabre mm. i feel it even when we're talking about it mm. when i start to feel this the tendrils that connect me to my personal self flexing and being tugged because mm. something in me knows there is another world yeah. and it's difficult because it's the domain primarily of religion to say that the material world is an illusion none of this stuff really matters we're all one these tropes are found in religion now to, what you're doing is bringing these ideas or exploring these ideas in academia and in chemistry and and it seems that it's sort of somewhat laden with taboo and prohibition, even within your field. I sense you're both cautious about talking about it in a personal way. Why? Uh, well, it's, uh, I mean, a, a lot of different aspects there. But, uh, you know, I, I guess, um, I mean, the stigma is a massive thing. And, uh, and it's like we're kind of walking a very thin line, you know. You've got the enthusiasts on, on one side, the psychedelic enthusiasts that might look in and say oh these guys are so dry they're such you know such scientists you know um they're boring or whatever and then you've oh, got them don't say that <laughs> i like you <laughs> and then we've got the um you know the mainstream on on the other hand who look in and think oh they're not real scientists they study psychedelics they must be hippies i bet they take loads of psychedelics so it's a really sort of difficult line to walk and personally you know a major motivation is to try and broaden that walkway in a way you know to kind of eat into some of the mystical aspects and although people won't like this kind of secularize them and and I don't see that as a threat although some people will I see it as kind of bridge building mm. um, and um, translation like it, there needs to be a Rosetta Stone of the spiritual experience to the material experience because materialism is our dogma and how are we going to get information yeah. over yeah if, and if you make it dogmatic but you know personally i wouldn't ever want to depreciate things like an entity experience and i think some people sometimes people are sort of threatened by it and think oh you're trying to explain away this experience that changed my life or whatever and and saying you know you want to say it's all brain activity and i i don't personally i don't want to do that at all i'd rather allow that way of looking at things to just sit i suppose you know a, a motivation would say I think it's interesting to understand how the hell that happens, you know. Um, and so for me, it's not explaining away. It's just explaining. It's a bit like, you know, the wonder of nature. It's still as magical and beautiful, you know, um, whether you understand how, how a tree grows or whatever. Yes, and, yes, and that's right. And, regard and however far one goes materialistically, mechanistically, through whichever scientific discipline, one is still left with the question of, well, how, why, what's motivating this, in what is it seated, what enthrones this procedure? And I think you're right, I agree with you entirely, that the more that there can be description and translation of these ideas, the more it will benefit its advance. What's your personal motivation in carrying out these studies? What do you want to do? What do you want to achieve? 
Um, education is one thing. Like I'd I'd like it to be more normalised and and less. Um, I don't know, esoteric, you know, the unconscious mind, that it be something that's taught to kids even, you know. Mm. Um, I think that will help to broaden, you know, a population's consciousness. To talk about unconsciousness. Yeah, unconscious I mean, in a way, you know, we're talking about indigenous cultures, maybe they have some of that, you know, and often they're quite healthy cultures. Um, you know, it's, it's less taboo and maybe some of that kind of parcelating is something that, that Western people have done you know, um, particularly sort of, you know, zealously. Yes. Um, uh, and so, you know, there's a motivation to normalise. Uh, I don't want psychedelics to be so esoteric. I don't want the unconscious mind and psychoanalysis uh, to be so unusual and taboo and stigmatised, you know. There is a motivation to to bring it into the mainstream and to, you know, get people talking about it and thinking about it. And I think in being more conscious of ourselves we're less likely to perhaps harm ourselves and others. God, that's a very beautiful and important idea. I'm intrigued by it because I feel that we are all too content to dismiss activity that we all experience like we all do dream every night, this amazing thing that happens in everyone's mind most days. And we just go, oh, no, crack on, pay the gas bill. Oh, no, mortgage rates have gone up. Oh, let's have another foreign war. And every night all of us tumble into some glorious world of wonder where our own life is re-rendered as a myth and that, that, that the information that's in there is somehow ignored and that the fact that there is obviously sort of potential to understand ourselves differently. The book that I have written is about you know sort of is about how my method of recovery mm. that I was given the 12 step method was a way of recognizing that the model I had of myself was ineffective was an ineffective way of living and that I needed to go on a, on a journey of being a different kind of man to succeed mm. in the world and uh, my sense is that prohibition around philosophy prohibition around substances I know I, I find it very difficult to regard the state particularly when you talk about this period of inception in the 60s is, as, as parental and loving when so many of its aims and objectives have been subsequently revealed to be mendacious. So it's like it's likely that prohibition around the psychedelics shares that objective that if more people experience this and it's probably like you know shamanism culturally is not for everybody not everybody in the tribe goes off every bloody day and wanders around in a th in ethereal realms and in the unconscious mind and is expected to interpret it it's different types of people have different types of abilities but some people should be experiencing different aspects of the unconscious and all of us should have a different way of relating to ourselves in totality not just oh well i'm just this bloke and then like deathbed lives I should have done more. Bye. I loved you. See ya. <laughs> Why didn't you tell me? I just simply couldn't cope. So, like, um, well, like, what is the? Tell me, what is the ongo your in ongoing intention for these studies? What's going on? Well, we're doing more clinical work. Um, we're looking at psilocybin, magic mushrooms, um, as a treatment for depression, and we we've, we've done that already and got an idea that it works and some idea of how it works, but now. Probably with um, that serotonin stuff, right? It's serotonin, and it works on those networks I was talking about earlier, mm. um, and um, and and a sort of reset mechanism as well seems to be going on. You know, that's curious. What like the narrative can be interrupted? You go, oh, I'm not. It's not happening now. I'm not being abused well, I, now. 
I suppose you, you can kind of scramble it up and, and dissolve it, but it comes back, you know, but it comes back like a malfunctioning computer is rebooted and it comes back and it's functioning again normally. Yes. Um, yeah, that's something to test more as we go on, but it's a... Have you had some negative stuff then? Haven't you had some people yeah. go proper crackers? Yes, absolutely. What like? Well, um, it can be nightmarish. We could, <laughs> You know, we can have patients wailing during the session and yeah. when they're literally you know facing demons um and and you know our well and they come back and they go oh it was terrible this thing at me where i was abused as a kid and i just relived it yeah no that that kind of thing um and uh and so they need to feel like they can go there and and this has literally happened that people no one's have, killed himself or anything mad yet have they no no not 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 that but the, the experience itself is incredibly challenging i can imagine it being traumatic i've experienced it to be traumatic because staring around in your own unconscious is going to be traumatic there's all sorts of crap lying around in there unaddressed but like you know just someone having a traumatic time ain't necessarily a negative thing so because at least you're living it and and there can be breakthrough and so this is the thing and, and we encourage the patients to look their demons in the eye and sometimes those demons are kind of manifestations of an abuser say and and when they do that they get this curious like shift in perspective and they'll see the abuser as a almost as a victim you know that yes. they can sort of see the chain of causality that led to them you know being so you know damaged that yes. they would do something Damaging. These results can be achieved therapeutically also. I mean, like sort of the reframing in sort of say neurolinguistic programming would be about like looking at, uh, at the perpetrator of abuse as themselves, uh, as you say, a victim like that, you know, that you could. But I'm imagining you could probably do that a lot quicker with a healthy dose of psilocybin. Yeah. People say that, you know, famously said about psychedelics that they can be like years of therapy, you know, in a few hours. Um, the danger is, I always feel like we should put a caveat on it because mm. we talked a lot about the environment and the context. And I do think it's true that, you know, in, in the wrong context, psychedelics could be harmful. Yeah, if you're a person that's mentally unwell, in inverted commas, it's probably not a good idea to take any mind-altering substances alone. And yeah. I think, but, but my personal belief is that the addiction phenomena is a result of people medicating themselves in a society that doesn't know how to treat them and has no real desire to take care of the mentally ill. I was smoking weed, I was drinking because I was in pain and I couldn't cope. And curiously, the other thing, as I already said, was I had a powerful curiosity about what was going on in my own mind, my own experience. A, a colleague of mine, uh, Rosalind Watts, has, has done some nice work around this theme of connectedness, you know, and a lot of um, mental disorders and, and probably addiction, you know, people suffer from a feeling of being isolated, of being disconnected from things, and they might be disconnected also from meaning, you know, yes. th there's a sense of m meaninglessness. And what seems to happen with psychedelics when, when there is a breakthrough is that people feel this... Um, strong sense of reconnection i'd like to know on a personal level what experience you used to have of people in recovery taking these substances because i i you know like i'm in recovery i'd like to know about people with 5 10 15 20 years plus in recovery from drugs and alcohol using these substances and then not going off and relapsing and holding up a gas station and kicking over some bins on their way out of the lab <laughs> Well, I, I, there's no evidence that psychedelics promote relapse, and and like I was saying earlier, they they kind of are sort of, uh, you know, drugs apart from other drugs in a way. You know, they're not Moorish, they're not addictive in themselves. Mm. Um, in fact, after a psychedelic experience, people often say, either never again or not for a while. You know, even if it's if it's 
transformative and 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 euphoric um they usually have to go through a tough time to to get there um so they're not hedonic drugs really you know they're not hedonic right cool hey tell us some of your greatest hits some of the things people have seen some of the things people have come back with gosh chris do you want to sure um yeah so uh okay i have one uh our last participant uh she you know she was going through the pace of the place of the geometry she pushed through but she couldn't push through any further because there were some you know presences not letting her go by and somehow a bit kind of like punishing her because of the audacity of going into this realm right um <laughs> so that was quite scary for her right so this kind of like first entity encounter but then slowly slowly she started you know uh, kind of like going through this haze of clouds uh and then they were entities like um chanting all around her and healing her as she came back from the experience so that's kind of well like i'm in <laughs> <laughs> yeah not unless under clinical conditions under clinical conditions i'm still undecided because i live my life one day at a time wow that sounds pretty good doesn't it i mean even just the idea that there's things in your unconscious mind i mean dreams are in themselves evidence you don't need to take drugs to see that there's stuff going on in your unconscious mind that you don't know about in fact just look at your own hand right now something's pumping blood into it and you're not a conscious mind isn't deciding so we're we are continual evidence of our own unconscious activity but for me the idea of these narratives and this idea of external phenomena being experienced not via the material world or the sensual world but via some kind of other teleogenesis is that the right word some other teleology like that there is momentum and receipt of data without going through the material world i like the sounds of that very very much because that seems like you know like people say the reason the world's not changing is because of a lack of vision because no one's got a better idea you know that we live in a political age where it's forms of management and shift of a percentile here or there but the things that are interesting in politics are about kindness and love and compassion and oneness and socialism is just we're all one we should look after each other and i suppose capitalism is just do the bloody best you can with what you got you know so like the idea that there could be new data new information and empirical so that's why i think it's important that you're building material mechanical empirical bridges because the idea that there is another vision within each of us another way of being another version of yourself waiting to be realized that's pretty exciting isn't it Anything else? Have you got anything else for me? <laughs> Any other stories of stuff you've seen? What about when Terence McKenna is saying that he's seeing... Ent- like, I like this idea about, like, uh, some of the things... I heard two things on YouTube that I liked. One was a Peruvian shaman who, like, uh, you know, obviously had worked with plants in his capacity as a shaman, being given DMT in clinical conditions. And he described, exactly as you did, that, like, you know, bodily sensation, the sensation of thought speeding up, then the idea, then thought stopping, then this sort of personal sense of death, of, like, oh, my God, they've ruined they've messed up the dosage I'm gonna die and then realising like, that that's in fact personal death or death of the ego and then sort of encountering other entities I love that I like you know the sound of that to me sounds so, so, absolutely bloody terrific one of the things he talked about is the loss of time that he said that on his way back from the experience he thought he goes oh, I've probably been gone thousands of years I hope there's some of my descendants alive and he came back and he sort of said to the clinicians oh anyone alive went, well yeah everyone you've been gone 10 minutes mate so like a DMT experience is what like this is 10 minutes or something yeah yeah Given 10 it that minutes way, yeah. 
kind of like 10 minutes actually much less the intense bit the intense bit is like five minutes or even three five minutes you're in a realm where sort of the rules of the material world and the physical world seem to abate and you experience things that are beyond your own understanding beyond your own the limitations of consciousness one of the things i like that terence mckenna said is if uh, if ufos were to land on the white house south lawn it would be less impressive than what's hap can happen in your own consciousness your own consciousness on dmt reveals to you that everything we understand the limitations and prohibitions of the material and physical world are but one frequency of being but one modem of reality and within us all there's this sort of different potentiality it's an interesting interesting way of putting oh, it you're such a scientist chris <laughs> oh why don't you have a, why don't you have a bunsen burner and a beaker full of alkaline <laughs> but I what much. i think is interesting is like this breakdown of the way of seeing the world i mean this is a really interesting thing and, and you mentioned it at some point i mean this idea of transitioning into another mode of being can be very healing in itself as well mm. and i think this is something that's really striking about the experience and why you know people build this very in intense narratives around them as well yeah you know you, know, you could tell already that um We've got a slight bias, or at least speaking for myself, I have that you know that it, even though it might feel like you transcend the physical and material, uh, I'm not sure that you do because there's no real evidence for that. Um, yeah, and what is the physical and material in these terms? You know, yeah. what would it mean to transcend it? Yeah. Maybe it's just the experience of totality that the idea, even the paradigm or the template that suggests material and transcendence of material is a materialistic or a limited idea. I suppose psychologically things have a psychological reality that in a way um, you know, are, are a different way of, of looking and understanding things than than looking at the biology. You know, looking at the biology is a is an objective perspective and you look at yeah. Whereas you know, this other perspective of feeling of experience is inherently subjective and it's hard. It is hard to to uh, reconcile those things. So, there, in a way, there is a sort of um, sorry to get a bit philosophical with terms, but like an inevitable dualism. You know mm. that there is a psychological reality to these experiences that you can't and perhaps you shouldn't try and explain away with biology, but you can let them both sit next to each other and say, well, I you know I do know what maps onto that feeling and that experience. So it's not you know it's. And then, you know, if, and if you want to try and, you know, shatter um, uh, present sort of paradigms in science and, and, and you have this belief um, hypothesis that actually these breakthroughs into another realm are actually literally true and that, you know, that there are other dimensions and such like, then you've got a hypothesis and you can go ahead and try and test it. Mm. But, you know, we haven't, we haven't done that yet. Can you leave something in there? A jam jar, <laughs> a beach ball, something. <laughs> um, uh, bring something back from it. Um, yes, that's interesting. What um, talking uh, uh, of? Uh, we mentioned at the beginning the idea of a collective unconscious. That one, uh, the, the, perhaps the defining Jungian idea. Is there in the work that you've done with psychedelics over your professional lifetime? Is there an interesting? consistency uh, across substances and across experiences that suggest that there is a commonality to the conscious experience of people using these substances well um yes <laughs> but um 
And, and I guess one unifying uh, um, aspect to the experience is this feeling of, oh, oh my God, you know, myself was a construction, you know, that it that it was built up, that it's not absolutely real, you know. Um, I think that's one thing that's that's common t- to everyone. And then when that is transcended, another common experience is that um, that we're all one. You know? <laughs> wow. No one wants that drug out there. The, uh, we're all one drug. You better go to work. I'm afraid I'm not going. You better pay your mortgage. Why? <laughs> you need to achieve more. For what reason? <laughs> I mean, it certainly presents a lot of questions that might, might be challenging to keeping a population behaving in a certain way. There's a very, very, there's a lot of interesting stories, and I don't think the uh, titular under the skin you know, name of this show has ever been more pertinent because a subcutaneous glance at these inner worlds suggests the potential for huge, huge change. I'm. I'm so grateful uh, to both of you, Robin and Chris, for uh, coming in and explaining, albeit in some cases tentatively, but importantly, very professionally, and I think still within the confines of academia, something that sounds like a wonderful, wonderful mystery. And when you know the great Brian Cox talks about physics, it's the mystery and the wonder and the glory and our attempts to understand and explain it that's fascinating in all forms of discipline. But when it comes to consciousness itself, uh, not just one more phenomena, but the crucible of all phenomena, it's deeply, deeply deeply fascinating so thank you both of you very thank much you. thank you it's been a pleasure really cool really cool who's got a syringe <laughs> <laughs> no no I'm not really joking about that you're listening to, uh, you've been listening to Under the Skin with Russell Brand it's, it's uh, not ironically with all sincerity sponsored by my book Recovery a new way of looking at addiction a new way of looking at consciousness a new way of managing your own feelings and your own life go to russellbrand.com we've had the uh, website redesigned it looks really good and all of the episodes are Under the Skin are on there completely free for you as is the truth completely free for you completely free free. There's the message under the skin. Thank you.